Hello and welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. I'm Jed Hearn and each episode I analyze a story to help you become a better writer. This episode is titled Elantris by Brandon Sanderson. Avalanche Endings. So if you're a long-time listener of this show, it will come as no surprise to you that Brandon Sanderson is one of my favorite writers. Actually, I would say he is my favorite writer writing today. Um, Elantris is his very first novel, published way back in the mid-2000s. But don't let that make you think that it's bad, because it's one of my favorites. It's a fantastic standalone fantasy that is super fast-paced and just goes from, like, zero to 300 kilometers an hour like that. Uh, It is a fantastic read. And probably the thing that I enjoyed most about this novel was the fact that I was consistently enjoying it throughout the novel. I was, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is a really good novel. This is, like, this is 8 out of 10. This is 8 out of 10. Really good. And then you kind of hit the ending of it, and things go ballistic. Sanderson is known for, somewhat affectionately, for this term called the avalanche ending, where the last 10% of a Brandon Sanderson novel, you've really got to just read it through in one shot, because so many things happen, there's so many twists, so many things like pay off at the end, there's great character moments, there's great arcs that get wrapped up, and... It's not like you really have a choice of putting the book down once you reach that last 10% stage. And yeah, from memory, out of the many, many, many Sanderson novels I've read, once I've hit that ending, it's been like, okay, Jed, you're going to finish this no matter what's happening because it's so damn good. So in this episode, I'm going to analyze how Sanderson pulled off an avalanche ending in Elantris and how, if you would like to have an explosive, fast-paced, twist-filled ending in your writing... Elantris is a really good example to study. So, because I am going to be talking about the plot, there will be some minor spoilers for Elantris. So, if you haven't read it, uh, or you're planning to read it, you might want to come back to this episode after you've had a read of the book. But if you haven't read the book, I'm going to explain it in a way that will still make sense for you and still give you a lot of value out of it. So, in the book, there is this place called Elantris. And this is a magical city that used to be this place where it was filled with Elantrians who were these kind of magical, godlike people. And they had ability to create and heal with just by waving their hand and drawing symbols in the air with glowing lights. But then there was this cataclysmic event in the past called the Riyadh. And the inhabitants of the city became cursed, and the city was sealed off from society. So the novel begins with Prince Raiden waking up to find that he has become an Elantrian. He's overnight, he's been cursed with the Elantrian curse, with the Rayod, and he's thrown into Elantris, doomed to stay there forever. See, Elantrians are immortal. However, they still feel pain, which means that over time their mind decays until they just go absolutely psycho and reduced to basically being, you know, people just huddled in the ground in constant agony. And... Raiden is thrown into Elantris, he basically discovers this, and he has to try to work out how to survive in this nightmarish world. So for my analysis to make sense, I'm going to have to explain the three main characters of the novel. So number one, they are Raiden, who's the prince of this land where the novel all takes place in, and he's the guy who succumbs to the Raid at the start, which is the Elantrian disease, and is thrown into Elantris. Second main character is Serene, who is a princess of another land who arrives in the city to find her future husband, quote-unquote, dead. Uh, The Raiden's father pretends he's dead because he doesn't want anyone knowing that his son became an Elantrian. And then the the third, last important character is 
Brathen, who is the leader of this foreign church who is sent over to convert the populace of this land to his religion in preparation for an invasion. So I mentioned at the start that the ending of Elantris is incredibly explosive. And what makes it explosive is this idea of a revelation sequence. So in his fantastic writing advice book, The Anatomy of Story, 22 Steps to Becoming a Master Storyteller by John Truby, which is a fantastic resource. I've referenced it in many, many other uh, episodes. You should definitely check it out. He talks about this idea of revelations. So according to Truby, quote, Revelations are the learning part of plot as opposed to taking action, and they are the keys to how complex the plot is. So a revelation is, uh, end quote, sorry. So a revelation is when readers learn something new about the story that changes their perception. This new information is going to profoundly shift the direction of the story moving forward. So a really basic revelation that you probably don't want to put into your novels is, on page 50 you find out everyone's an alien. Okay, it's a revelation. You found something new about it. Probably not a good revelation, but that's just an example. So here's another quote about revelations from stories, uh, from John Truby. The more revelations you have, the richer and more complex the plot. Every time your hero or audience gains new information, that's a revelation. Key point, the revelation should be important enough to cause your hero to make a decision and change his course of action. End quote. That was from John Truby's Anatomy of Story. So Truby then goes on to talk about this whole idea of sequencing your revelations. So essentially working out where the plot twists are coming in your novel. So he talks about three keys for an important, not an important, sorry, three important keys to make sure that your revelation sequence works and isn't just this weird jarbled mess. So quote, here are the three keys. Number one, the sequence of revelations must be logical. Number two, they must build in intensity. Ideally, each reveal should be stronger than the one that came before it. Stronger than the one that came before it. Jed popping back into that quote here. That's going to be important later. Remember that. Back into the quote. You generally want a build-up so that the drama increases. Number three, the reveals must come at an increasing pace. This also heightens the drama because the audience gets hit with a greater density of surprise. End quote. So, I've gone through Elantris' plot summary. Um, very useful resources online out there. Very grateful to be doing this podcast in a time where there are things like The Copper Mind, which has a lot of Brandon Sanderson novels um, described on there in really good detail. And I've plotted out the key revelation sequence from Elantris. So let's go through it together. Elantris is broken into three parts. Part 1 has 27 chapters, and it contains two revelations. The first revelation is when Rayadin discovers that despite these Elantrians being immortal, they still feel pain, and then this drives them to madness as they eventually succumb to their wounds. Rayadin makes a decision at this point, and that's important because a lot of the revelations will be more impactful if your characters make a decision because of them. It's all very well telling them telling the reader that, hey, look, they're all aliens now. But if it doesn't actually make your characters form a decision, or if it doesn't actually change your story, sort of wasn't any point to that revelation, and it might not actually be a revelation. So, as a rule of thumb, most good revelations will result in a good decision from the character. So the decision that Rayodin makes after discovering that Elantrians basically live these miserable lives that are immortal, but filled with agony, 
is Rayodun commits to making Elantris a better place. The second key revelation is that Rayodun discovers that the Elantrian magic is still actually working. However, it's broken. So people in Elantris used to be able to draw symbols in the air with glowing lines, and it would do awesome things like teleport them, or heal people, or make fire warm up their sandwiches, or whatever. I don't think they had sandwiches back in then. But anyway, you get where I'm going with that. So Rayodun discovers that you can still draw the lines in Elantris, However, they just fade straight away and nothing actually happens, so it's super pointless. So Raiden makes a decision, remember, decisions, revelations, linked. Raiden makes a decision that he wants to try to fix the magic. He wants to find out why it went wrong, and hopefully try to solve it. Then we move on to part 2 of the novel, which also has 27 chapters. So the first revelation in this, third revelation of the novel, is when Raiden, who if you remember back to the start, is a priest from another country who is trying to convert this country to his religion, gets the Elantrian sickness. However, after he is thrown into Elantris, his prayers to his god apparently heal him, and he's released. Of course, readers know, having seen some chapters from his perspective, that he actually used a poison to simulate the symptoms of being Elantris, and then once the poison wore off, he was allowed back out. But everyone else thinks it's a miracle. So that's a key revelation that basically improves Raythan's power in the novel um, and is advancing his goal of trying to take over this land. So revelation number four, uh, the next revelation here, comes when the king, who is Raythan's father, is found that he is ritually sacrificing his palace staff in observance of an underground religious practice. Pretty dark stuff. He's put in jail, loses the crown, and hangs himself. The decision that the characters make from this stage, a lot of different characters make a lot of different decisions from this, but the key, most plot-impacting decision is when Raythan, the priest from the foreign country, uses this event to establish a hold on the throne. He's succeeding in his goal of trying to convert this country to his religion in preparation for its invasion. Revelation number five comes with when Serene, who was the princess betrothed to Raodin, arrived in the town to find that Raiden was quote-unquote dead, Serene is appears to be struck by the Elantrian sickness, although it's actually another dose of the priest's poison. The decision made is that she's thrown into Elantris. Raiden's hold on the throne tightens. Dun-dun-dun. I feel like I had to throw that in at some point there. I mean, like, you know, once you're talking about revelations and plot twists, you gotta got to throw in that reveal sound somewhere. Revelation number six. Raiden and Serene, who has now been thrown into Elantris, discover how to make the magic work better. They realize that at the same time that Elantris stopped working and the magic stopped working, that occurred when there was this big earthquake that created a chasm across the country. And they find that the symbol that you draw to start the Elantrian magic is the same shape as a map of the country. What they do is they add an extra line to that symbol representing where that chasm is, and it actually makes the magic work. It's still not working perfectly, but it's weak enough, it's strong enough to actually do something. So the, this revelation drives them to make the decision to keep researching the magic, and as readers, we get the idea that they are probably going to find out what the magic was and how to use it by the end of the novel. Moving on to part three, the last part of the novel, 
This part only has nine chapters. The previous parts had 27 chapters. That's important. I'm going to mention why later. So revelation number seven, Horathan, who's the priest from the other nation who's trying to, um, you know, conquer this one or convert it so that it can be conquered, discovers that one of his priests, who he thought was his underling, is actually this powerful warrior monk. And this man unleashes his fellow warrior monks and takes over the town outside Elantris, capturing a bunch of people, including Serene. This other warrior monk takes them to be executed. And in doing so, they wound Raiden, who earlier he and Serene had managed to kind of sneak out of Elantris. So the decision from this is that Raiden's friends take the now injured Raiden to this pool. And this pool is the only thing that can really kill Elantrians. It's basically a way for them to go out of their misery. Revelation number 8 follows super quickly after this revelation. Raiden, as he's being carried into this murder pool, I don't know if that's what the actual term is for it, but that's what I'm using, he realizes how to fix the magic. He saves himself from the pool and dashes back down the mountain to the city, where he grabs a stick and he draws out the lion representing the chasm in the actual physical ground of Elantris. And as he completes it, he reveals that Elantris and its surrounding cities are one massive symbol. The same signal that people use to draw to make the magic. So he fixed the symbol, and now the magic works. So there's kind of like some cool fights as Raiden uses his newfound magic powers as an Elantrian to um, stop the warrior monks. And then he makes a key decision here. When Raiden teleports to the place where the warrior monk has taken Serene. Because the warrior monk was planning to use Serene to make her father, who is the king of another nation, convert to the monk's religion in front of his people. The final revelation, revelation number nine, is when in the big climactic fight, Hraithan, who is the priest who was formerly trying to convert everyone to his religion, reveals that he had partial training as this warrior monk, and this secret lets him save Raiden from one of the other monks. Raiden is then able to defeat the monks, and he saves the day, uh, and all things are good. Elantris is healthy again, the magic works, and this other nation that was trying to conquer them is basically destroyed from this. Well, the nation isn't destroyed, but they're held off for now. And the decision that comes from this is, despite Hraithan's early attempts to convert Raiden's people, the priest is remembered as a hero. So what's interesting here, if we look at these nine revelations, and I think it's important to mention that the revelations you got from this novel might be different to the ones I got. I might have missed a few. Maybe I've included some that <coughs> you wouldn't really class as revelations. But either way, what's important about looking at this sequence of revelations is, remember how Truby mentioned that whole idea of revelations compounding? It's exactly what happened here. In part one, there are two revelations, and there's 27 chapters in this part, so not a whole lot. In part two, there's four revelations, also in 27 chapters, so that's a 50% increase, right? And then in part three, there are three revelations but they come in only nine chapters. So what you can see here is if you visualize a graph in front of you, it's going to be projecting images into your mind, telepathic style, envision one of those kind of exponential growth graphs where it starts small, it's small for a lot, and then near the end it really kicks up, and you get like that hockey stick growth where it just shoots off into the stratosphere at the end. That's basically how you want to think of revelations. You want to be making sure that you're putting enough in earlier on so that the story is progressing, 
And then as you reach the end, if you want that explosive climax, which I'm going to say, you don't need it in all stories. But in kind of action-packed stories like this one, it's really appropriate. Then near the end, you really want to be skyrocketing the frequency and the intensity of those revelations. And that's exactly what Brandon Sanderson does in Elantris. So to wrap this all up, if you want a fast-paced story with an explosive ending, structure your revelation sequence so that the biggest revelations, the biggest twists, the biggest plot reveals come at the end. And speed up how fast you're delivering these revelations as the story progresses, like that sentence I just said. <sighs> okay, that didn't really work. That worked in my mind, didn't really work in audio. So, like I touched upon before, this does not mean that your story should be boring for 90% and then have 10% of awesome at the end. That's not a cool idea. Readers will probably not get to the awesome bit at the end. Like Sanderson did, you need to drip feed revelations in earlier in the story, and then just as it progresses, ramp them up, make them come more frequently. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, if you've listened to a couple of novel analyst shows, it's no surprise that I did this episode on Sanderson, because he's my favorite writer at the moment, and it was a joy to read Elantris, his first published novel. Mainly because it did not feel like a first novel. It was polished, it was tight, and it was fast-paced. A lot of that, when I think about it, boiled down to the perfectly structured revelation sequence. And studying how Elantris is plotted, like we did in this episode, I think it's got a lot to teach us writers. So that wraps this episode. Until next time, I'm Jed Hearn, and thank you for listening to the Novel Analyst Podcast. See you soon. On your way out, I would love if you could let me know what your favorite Brandon Sanderson novel is. I've already analyzed a couple on the Novel Analyst podcast. Um, just from memory, I've done Mistborn, I've done Steelheart, and I've done Warbreaker. But if you have any other Brandon Sanderson novels that you really, really love and that you have strong thoughts on as to what makes them such an effective story, send me a tweet, at Jed Hearn on Twitter, at Jed Hearn. That's Hearn, H-E-R-N-E. Send me a tweet and, you know, let me know what your favorite Brandon Sanderson novel is and what makes it so good. And I might even quote you in a future episode if I do it on that book. <laughs>